Hello, I'm Peter Goodwin. Welcome to another special edition of Audio News from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Audio News Review. In today's programme, reducing domestic violence, optimising HIV treatment and how folic acid supplements improve cognitive function in older adults. But we begin with fertility. Underweight women may run a higher risk of having a miscarriage, according to a study from London published in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. The investigators asked 6,000 women about lifestyle and other factors, and they analysed differences between 600 women who had a first trimester miscarriage as compared with similar women who did not. I asked Pat Doyle which factors they were looking for, Were they interested in diet, for example? We were always interested in diet, but also things like previous history. We already know that um, if you've had a poor obstetric history, you have an increased risk of miscarriage. We were interested in age. We were interested in father's age, for instance, which hasn't really been looked at. Fathers get ignored in this uh, science, and so we were quite interested in asking a few things about the fathers. So we also asked about weight, smoking, and all the other things that we consider as risky behaviour such as alcohol. Now you've highlighted in this piece body mass index Mm. or body weight but what factors overall did come out of the study then? Okay well actually we were very pleased to find that the things we expected to come up that the things that other people have worked on and we would have been very worried if they hadn't come up did come up and so increased maternal age so as you get older you increase the risk if you've had a miscarriage before, you also increase your risk. And some of those things we were expecting and we saw, so that was very gratifying. There was nothing, if you like, we weren't concerned about the quality of the data. A few things were surprises, though, that we didn't expect, and one of these was the weight story. I personally was expecting a story with overweight, because we do know people who are overweight can have very complex pregnancies. We didn't find that here, although there was a little bit of an effect, but I won't go into the statistics on that. But what we did find quite clearly was women who were underweight, that's less than 18.5 body mass index, we found that they had about a 70% increased risk of miscarriage. And that is very thin, that that is severely underweight, that we'd be worried about those women if we were seeing them clinically, concerned that they were so slim. And this is an entirely new finding. It was unexpected because, as you say, you were expecting obesity or overweight to uh, cause a problem. So what do you make of this? It's actually not that surprising, simply because if you consider the demands of pregnancy and breastfeeding, and especially breastfeeding, if you're very, very slim with low fat stores to start with, in terms of the health of the mother and the baby, In fact, it may be that we are designed, I know this is a rather non-medical way of putting it, but we may need to have a certain fat store. It's not surprising having thought of it in that way. Among the women, though, of low body weight, what was the effect of having nutritional supplements and vitamins? That's an interesting question. We didn't look at it within them. We looked at it in the whole group. So what we did find was a protective effect of a good diet, which, again, not surprising. Some work on this has been done, and uh, we found a similar effect, that if you have a good diet rich in uh, vitamins and minerals, then you have a lower risk of miscarriage compared to those who don't. Now, I think you highlighted vegetables too, fruit and vegetables. Yes, we were asked about daily consumption of fruit and vegetables, which were found to be protective. Now, we haven't dug down into the data. 
on what types? Basically because we didn't ask in sufficient detail. Because the questionnaire was long enough and you just put people off if you ask too much. But it, I think it's something that goes along with the healthy eating, the preparing for pregnancy idea. So again, it's not surprising, but this is evidence that it's a real effect. So w what then might be the messages coming out of this that mm. clinicians could apply? Because inevitably, mm. uh, whether your study you feel is, is complete or not, inevitably people are going to want to ask your opinion about what they yeah. should do. This outcome was miscarriage, but I think it can all, this statement I'm going to make is almost across the board with all pregnancy outcomes and even infertility itself is that if you're thinking of pregnancy there is this idea of planning for pregnancy. In other words it's not a passive process and I think the more we emphasize, society emphasizes there's a special time in people's lives which will affect not only the life of the fetus but the life of the mother and that is preparing, having a good diet, changing behaviors it's a good thing to do in terms of public health. But in terms of the miscarriage itself, then the message is the same. That was Pat Doyle, Chair of Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. A microcredit scheme combined with a gender and HIV training programme has contributed to a greater than 50% reduction in domestic violence among poor women in the rural Limpopo province of South Africa. This is the outcome of the IMAGE study, a randomised controlled trial which included over 800 women, the results of which are published in The Lancet. Charlotte Watts told Derek Thorne about the intervention that was used. The microcredit scheme, what that does is target poorest women within the intervention communities and give them, engage them, enrol them in a small loans enterprise that builds up from small amounts of money to large amounts of money which women can use to start their own businesses. And alongside the loan meetings, what we did is add a series of 10 participatory um, educational sessions called Sisters for Life, where women went through a whole host of activities ranging from sort of gender norms and stereotypes and sort of working through with them what, you know, what are expectations of women, sort of a range of activities related to um, their sexual and reproductive health. And, and how then did you try and assess how effective these, these interventions were? So what we did is use a randomised control study design, a random selection of, of villages received the intervention and comparable interventions only received the intervention after the study was completed. And then what we did was interview women who were receiving the intervention and similar women from the villages that weren't receiving the intervention, and then also interviewed children and adolescents in their household, and then also adolescents in the broader community. So, so looking at these, uh, these interventions then, how effective were they? Well, what um, we were really pleased to see was that the intervention reduced women's past year experience of physical or sexual partner violence by 55%. So we were seeing more than half as much violence by, um, against women who were involved in this intervention compared with similar women who weren't receiving this intervention. And this is really important. It's the first intervention to show that over relatively short programmatic timeframes, we can have a substantial impact on women's risk of violence. Did you find as well then that the, um, the HIV rates were at all affected by this intervention? Um, the way we tried to assess its impact on HIV was looking at a range of indicators, um, including things like women's communication with their children in their household about HIV. That was something that we, we very much talked about and encouraged women to do. And we saw a significant 
increases in communication about sex and sensitive issues. And there were a lot of stories about things like women marching against HIV, leaving condoms under the pillows of their children, um, and being very open after the intervention about their risk and their children's risk of HIV. Um, and then we also assessed quantitatively whether the intervention working with these women had led to broader changes amongst adolescents in the wider community. And we didn't see differences in HIV incidents amongst that broader community. And I think that lack of impact relates to the relatively short time frame over which we conducted the evaluation. So what do you think this study is actually telling us then about how we might deal with these problems in the future? I think what the study really points to is the potential of and the importance of intervening at some of the structural factors that really drive women's vulnerability to HIV infection. So it can seem um, intimidating and sort of unfeasible to try and tackle things like gender inequality and poverty. But what this intervention shows is actually that you can empower women, we can address things like violence. But the important thing in doing that is to really bring together the expertise that we have from public health about talking about gender, talking about HIV and violence with the expertise of of groups such as microfinance organisations that have experience and expertise at addressing issues around poverty. That was Charlotte Watts of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now more from Derek Thorne with news about HIV therapy. Results from a long-term HIV trial have shown that it is not appropriate to use a three-class antiretroviral strategy, including protease inhibitors, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors and non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. The first study was a randomised strategy trial looking at 1,400 patients with a median follow-up of five years, and its data have been published in The Lancet. All patients had NRTI treatment, and in addition, they either received a PI, an NNRTI, or both. I got more from Roger MacArthur of Wayne State University in Detroit, and he firstly told me about how the three arms compared with the composite endpoint. We found that for the composite endpoint of progression to AIDS, death, or CD4 cell count decline, that there was no difference amongst the strategies. Uh, the curves were uh, basically superimposable in terms of uh, acquisition of this uh, composite endpoint or any of its components. Uh, but we also found that the NNRTI strategy was the most virologically suppressive over time. Uh, this is a, a bit hard to understand how a strategy could be better virologically but no better immunologically or clinically, and we speculated that it has to do with the strong association, the strong association of disease progression with resistance to the NNRTI class that developed amongst many who failed virologically or broke through virologically on the NNRTI strategy. So in other words, the NNRTI strategy was the best virologically, but it was no better clinically or immunologically than the other two strategies. So you've got these, these curves then that are rather superimposable, but how did the toxicity figure here, especially considering the three-class strategy? Well, the, uh, we looked at toxicity, and of course the specific toxicities were a bit different in the uh, PI versus NNRTI uh, strategy, but we, we looked at 
the issue of toxicity in a number of different ways, including why people stopped the drugs if they did stop drugs and how rapidly they did so. Uh, and we found that there was much more rapid discontinuation of the drug, average of months earlier, in those that started on the three-class strategy. So simply put, the three-class strategy got people clinically to the same point. It was not associated with any less disease progression. It was not associated with any less death. It was not associated with a better increase in CD4 cells uh, than the other two strategies, and it was associated with more early discontinuations of the drugs due to toxicity. Does this mean then that the three-class strategy is basically not appropriate? Yes, it does. And in fact, the, uh, in the U.S., the uh, Department of Health and Human Services guidelines, the DHHS guidelines, have since been changed so that they now specifically recommend against using a three-class strategy up front. Okay, and then as regards the NNRTI versus the PI, I mean, is that just a, a decision that doctors can make? Yes, and, and in fact, to some extent, uh, it validates the approach that the DHHS guidelines have taken for quite some time. Uh, they don't say NNRTI is better than uh, PI. They basically give reasons that you might consider one or the other, and then say that if you choose an NNRTI approach, these are the preferred uh, drugs. If you choose a PI approach, a different group is preferred. But there is no attempt in the guidelines to say, uh, under certain circumstances, NNRTI is better than PI. I think that this validates that approach. Roger MacArthur from Wayne State University in Detroit talking to Derek Thorne. And now good news for your older patients. Folic acid supplements could help improve their cognitive function. In another Lancet paper, investigators from the Netherlands found that older adults who received folic acid supplements had better cognitive function than those who didn't. The double-blind study randomized participants to receive either 800 micrograms of folic acid daily or a placebo. Sarah Maxwell spoke with Jane Derger over the telephone line from Lausanne. What we have done is we have taken 818 individuals between 50 and 70 years old with raised levels of plasma total homocysteine. And we had given them folic acid supplementation for three years, and the other half had received, of course, a placebo capsule. We had measured cognitive performance at the beginning and at the end of three years, and we had seen that after three years, the change in cognitive function in those participants taking a folic acid supplement was significantly better than those taking a placebo supplement in a variety of cognitive functions. And they were memory, simple speed, complex speed, and information processing speed. These are all domains that decline most quickly with age. You did an assessment of the cognitive function before they started taking um, the supplementation of folic acid and after. How did you exactly go about that assessment of cognitive function? Right. We had done that in a very standardized way. First of all, everyone had come in fasted. We had provided them a standard breakfast so that there would be no variation in cognitive performance due to, for instance, coffee consumption or different types of breakfast or having no breakfast, for instance. We had used a battery of tests. We had measured memory by using the word learning test. And to do so, we had shown the participants 15 words, and we had asked them to repeat them directly after we had shown them all 15. That's a measure of immediate recall. 
after 20 minutes, we had asked them to recall as many of the 15 words as they could and without showing them the words, and that is a measure of delayed recall. With simple speed, we had asked the participants to read words as quickly as they could, and the words were red, blue, green, and yellow. Of course, we have a lot of practice with this throughout our life, so people are quite quick with that, and you don't have to think too uh, long to read those words. We had done the same when we had asked them to cross out numbers 1 through 16 as fast as they could. So those are measures of simple speed. With complex speed, we had asked the individuals, the participants, to tell us the color of the ink that the word was printed. And on this test, for instance, the word red may have been printed in blue ink. That is a type of process called cognitive flexibility in which you have to suppress your learned response, which is reading, and try to learn a new task, which is then to ignore the reading and to say the color of the ink. All those tests sound very uh, interesting, but let's get to the nuts and bolts of the actual results. You saw a significant benefit for those patients who had been receiving folic acid supplementation over those who had placebo alone, but how significant was that benefit? Can you demystify some of this data for me? Right. How old you are is a good determinant of how well you can perform on these tests. So I had compared the effect of folic acid to calendar years. And for instance, for delayed recall, which is a subunit of the memory test and which happens to be the most clinically relevant, we had seen that if one had taken folic acid for three years compared to the performance of someone taking a placebo, that the person taking folic acid, his performance was comparable to someone seven years his junior. And that difference, that seven years difference was due to folic acid supplementation. Seven years younger performance it sounds like quite a dramatic impact. Potentially, is any of that a result of other factors within these patients' lives, for instance, their diet or how much exercise they're taking? Um, do, do those things factor into these results? I don't believe that other factors like physical activity or dietary intake will explain the difference we did see. However, we don't know if the change in cognitive function is actually secondary to something else, like, for instance, depression, because mood and depression can affect cognitive function. So it could very well be that folic acid affects mood, and that affects then cognitive function. Overall, what have you taken out of this study's results then? It all sounds very encouraging. And does this potentially mean that we should all in our later years be considering taking folic acid supplementation? What's the key points that you've taken out of this? Since this is the only study which shows a clear benefit of folic acid on cognitive function, albeit a small effect on cognitive function, this needs to be repeated in other populations using, for instance, different age criteria, I do believe one should pay close attention to the status of vitamin B12 in the population. And until we have our results confirmed, I would recommend that one eats a diet rich in folate, uh, which is then, of course, having lots of green leafy vegetables, citrus fruits, and whole grains. And it could be that lower doses will lead to similar or even better effects than what we have found. And also research should be concentrated on the effects of increasing dietary folate to see what that could do for neurological health.
That was Jane Durger of the Nestlé Research Centre in Lausanne. She was speaking with Sarah Maxwell about the work she did at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. And that's all from this episode of Audio News Review. We'll be back with more soon. So from me, Peter Goodwin, on behalf of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, goodbye.